You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. We all learned in kindergarten things like share everything, play fair, don't hit people, put things back where you found them, clean up your own mess, and take a nap every afternoon. Author Robert Fulgham. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Back in 1988 and 89, you could hardly go anywhere in America without seeing somebody with a copy of a little book written by a former Unitarian minister called All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. The author was Robert Fulgham, and that book stayed on the New York Times bestseller list for two years. That book struck a chord with millions of readers, not just in the U.S., but around the world, with its simple message of wisdom. Now, here's how Robert Fulgham summed up the book when I first interviewed him in 1988. We all learn in, in kindergarten things like share everything, play fair, don't hit people, put things back where you found them, clean up your own mess, don't take things that aren't yours, say you're sorry when you hurt somebody, wash your hands before you eat, flush the toilet after you use it, warm cookies and cold milk are good for you, and live a balanced life. Learn some, think some, draw, paint, sing, dance, play, and work every day some, and take a nap every afternoon. And when you go out into the world, watch out for traffic, hold hands, and stick together. Now, a year later, while all I really need to know I learned in kindergarten was still on the New York Times bestseller list, Fulgham published his second book called It Was on Fire When I Lay Down on It. And that's when we had this conversation. So here now, from 1989, Robert Fulgham. There is this paradox uh, that life is sort of crazy and senseless, and yet we're going to try to make sense out of it and get on with tying our shoes and eating lunch and doing our job. That's the human phenomenon. It didn't make sense for Adam to eat the apple. They lived in paradise, right? But there's this human thing that won't left well enough alone, and it still goes on. There is a gentle good humor about both of your books well, thank you. that that make them that make them very pleasant to read. I, I realized that when people looked at the first book, it would be easy to jump to some conclusions. Unknown author, uh, retired minister from Seattle, probably cleaning out his sermon file, uh, icky title, uh, death. Nobody would really want to look at it. And after a while, when the w- people begin to pass it around from hand to hand in that publishing marketing thing that nobody can touch, but it's someone says, you've got to read this book, that's the highest compliment an author can get. What people understand now, I think, and why the second book is working well also, is that I'm talking about terribly important, terribly serious things with a light heart. We are literally sent out of the home to the world in the form of school to civilize us. And when we get there, we are told what human beings have figured out over five, ten thousand years and the language we can understand. If you are six years old, you are told you have to clean up your own mess. If you're 50 years old and the CEO of a large company, the government says you're responsible for the ecological damage you have done. But it's the same problem and the same issue. Immediately when you're told, for example, don't hit somebody, some kid in the class does hit somebody, and immediately, this is age six, issues of law and justice and mercy and precedent come up. And we're talking about the real fundamentals of the human enterprise. And it's nice to know, if you're confused about this life, that you 
knew all that all the time. You know how to be a moral person, that you don't manage to do it. Well, you're like I am. I don't pull it off all the time either. But you don't need a new guru or a new diet or a new something. You know, it's the living that's the hard part. So I, that's kind of what's happened to the book. A number of people have said what you might have said. First I thought, and now I think, because I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about us. And that's a different perspective. Now I'm wondering, what made you th- put in this book this this rather poignant reply, if you will, to the all-I-need-to-know-I-learned-in-kindergarten essay? In the first book, which which I never never thought would be published, never occurred to me that I'd publish a book, and then I had no notion that it would have the kind of success it's had, I thought maybe I ought to make it clearer who I am and what I'm about. I know that the world is not as simple as kindergarten, and I know that everybody, and I just wanted to complete the thought here that I'm not, I'm, I am someone who has lived in the trenches as a minister and as someone who's been involved in civil justice and rights and so forth. I know about the bitter side, the tough side, the dark side of life. And in, in spite of that, there is this yes that's within me and with everybody. And I just wanted to make that clear in the second book. Now there's a third book that's uh, sort of writing itself, and I keep thinking about that line after w- about Willie Nelson, which I report in this book, that the devil made me do it the first time, and after that I'd done it on my own. The kindergarten <laughs> book happened to me, but now I'm, I'm responsible. But, of course, part of that is, too, the, the publisher who says, hey, this was great, it's selling great, what else have you got? Yes, yes, and I, I have not responded to that. In fact, I first said I'm not going to write another book, I'll leave well enough alone. And then I realized that as I was going along and finding out who was reading my book and the conversation I was having, I thought, well, I'd like to tell that person that I'm writing to some other things that are as equally important to me that will fill out the picture. And then when I finished the second book, I realized there were still a few things I would like to address. I'm quite certain that this will, the third one will be the last in the series, though there are some things I'd like to talk about that are best the kinds of truth that are best addressed through clearly acknowledged fiction. So I'm working now on a book of fiction. It's not a novel. It's hard to describe, but that goes at some things I want to talk about through that better lens. So we'll see where that goes. Now, if I recall correctly, when we talked about a year ago about uh, your first book, you said that if anybody had saved your sermon, your the, 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 the newsletters, newsletters, that they would basically have the book yes is that the is that's, that true of this one as well no no that's that's not uh, true of this one the, in the first one uh, i had literally as a minister thought that most of what i read in minister newsletters are major usually a major either matter excuse me of an ego trip or they're about the local bowling scores of the church league and i thought here's an opportunity to write so i set myself the goal of once a week eight and a half by 14 piece of paper, one sentence at a time, to talk about something that was important, that wasn't an I sort of thing. Then after that, and if you'd have been in my church, you'd have gotten all that stuff. So people were kind of upset about having to pay for it twice, as a matter of fact. <laughs> the second one, I thought, now this is written from a 51-year-old man's point of view, and it is written from having known now that I have an audience, and written from well, out of ideas I've thought about, had for a long time, but not hasn't been in paper before. So this is a fresh deck in some sense. The third book, even more so. When you're in a church, one would one's writing would be somewhat proscribed by the circumstances. There are categories of things one might not address. 
this book and the book after go in that direction of things I might not have addressed in a religious context. Though then I think to myself, well, now why is that? <laughs> so I've had to examine my own feelings in the process of this. Oh, yeah, you, you've kind of led me into my next question. What have you learned about yourself in the writing of these two books? I learned that I, how I think and feel isn't such a solitary thing after all. Once you find a lot of people reading your book and passing it on, then you realize you have company, that you are not as alone as you thought. And uh, it's kind of like getting elected to office. There is some legitimizing of who you are and what you are. And you think, oh, okay, maybe now I'm a steward of something that belongs to a lot of us. And uh, I've learned I can handle this. So far, so good. I also know I'm wandering around in a minefield. Fame and fortune are dangerous things. Are you comfortable with them? No. Uh, I had assumed in this time in my life that I, life would be quiet and, and uh, my wife was going to be supporting me. She's a physician and we'd struck this deal where she would go to medical school and then I could. So I thought I would be cooking dinner and reading books and um, this is not what I had in mind. But, and it's work. It is really work to do this. Uh, anybody who thinks that getting national attention is a piece of cake doesn't know what it's really like. It becomes a hard job. On the other hand, I realized, as I frequently said to people in counseling situations in the ministry, you have to play the cards that life hands you. Usually we were talking about deuces and threes, but if life hands you some aces, you can blow yourself away by not playing those well either. So we think, okay, here's some aces. How well can I play them? It's a major challenge to do this. After this short break, Robert Fulgham reveals what everyone says on their deathbed and what no one says on their deathbed. interview with Robert Fulgham. As a writer, when you sit down with a story such as, uh, and I'm not, I know Reader's Digest calls it the Daddy Prize. I don't know what you yes. call it uh, in here. Uh, that was the first one I read because it was right after I got your book, I'd gotten the Reader's Digest that previewed what was coming next month, and it talked about the the touching story or, oh, or yes. whatever it was, the, the Daddy Prize. Oh, yes. You know, coming through <laughs> the Daddy Prize. The prize. <laughs> yeah, i got to be sure and read that. <laughs> and you didn't call it the Daddy Prize, so I had to go. No. I, I had to read each of them until I <laughs> <laughs> That's a story on the surface of it could be uh, looked upon as the most icky kind of daddy drivel sort of story about my little girl loves me and I love her. And it's not about that at all. It's an example of one of those many times in one's life when I realized that I was being loved or approved or touched in some way, and I missed it. And I keep learning over and over again that the only kind of affection and love, respect you can get from other people is what they can give you, not what you expect to get. I don't know how many times it's going to take me to get that <laughs> shoved at me to get it, but that's what that story is really about. I can't imagine any father, though, reading that and not being moved. Sure. Well, it, it, it has the, in it that whole thing that came out of Thornton Wilder's great play, Our Town, when Emily, that young woman, has died, gone to the cemetery, she wants to go back one more time, so she's allowed to wander around as a ghost figure in real life, and she sees that all these things are happening to people and they don't see each other, she says. We don't even notice each other. And she wants to, she can't handle it. She wants to go back to where the dead are. I've thought about that so many times. We rush through it and miss the best parts of it. I have sat on the edge of the bed of many people who are dying, especially old people, and I say to them, 
what wisdom do you have now? What do you wish you'd done differently? And nobody ever says, I wish I'd have hurried up. No one ever says, I wish I'd taken more papers home from the office or spent more time on the job. They all say the same thing. I wish I had loved the people close by more. That, and I keep forgetting that, even though I know that. We all do. But just this last comment is something I would like to say. I, my writing is not prescriptive or didactic. I'm not telling anybody how they ought to. I'm assuming that most intelligent people know they're like me. They just lose sight of how it's supposed to work. It's a statement of companionship rather than one of professorship. And the mail I get says that. I, I don't get guru letters. Thank you, Dr. Wonderful Jim, for fixing my life. I get, hello, and I get a story just like that. And that's a lovely response from people. Now, you have been, I'm, a, I'm going strictly by memory, so correct me if I'm wrong. You've been a minister. You've been a bartender. Yes. You've been a salesman. Yes, you've IBM. Been, yes. Uh, an IBM salesman. You've been uh, a cowboy, a, a, cowboy, <laughs> uh, a singer. Yes. Uh, uh, when are you going to settle down? <laughs> I have settled down. I'm still doing now what I've done since I was aware of who I was when I was about 17, when I always wanted to be the most Robert Fulgham I could be. And if that meant sometimes doing contradictory things, so be it. I realized, like Whitman once said, I am large, I contain multitudes. And I've never had a single full-time job. And I've never answered the question when someone says, what do you do with a single word, plumber, whatever. And some of the things I've done at the same time have been extraordinary experiences. For example, I was a bartender while I was in seminary. First week I went to seminary, I had to have a job to support myself, and the only thing I could get was at night. And the guy said, you seem like an honest guy. They need an honest guy attending bar. So I thought, well, I'm going to get thrown out of the seminary for this, but I'm going to take the job. So I went to see the dean of the seminary and said, guess what? I've got a job as a bartender. And he said, that's really wonderful. You're 20 years old. You're very green behind the ears. You don't know much about real life. You'll learn far more there than you will in this classroom. And they might get something from you. Who knows? So he said, take the job, call it a course, write it up every week, and we'll talk with it about it just like a book review. And I suddenly realized this was a very wise man. And I also realized that one could do things. One, one, if one is going to be a minister, one has to be in the world, not just in the church. And so often ministers spend all their time in churches where it is the world that needs people who care about people at that level. I learned a powerful lesson on that occasion, and uh, one I haven't forgotten. One of the things that people frequently ask me is, where else has this book gone? And I'm astonished to say that the kindergarten book is now in 14 languages in 62 countries. No one more dumbfounded at that than I. At the same time, wonderfully pleased to know that what I'm writing about is not American values and concerns, but human values. I, that's a lovely development in this. And the Firebook is being purchased also in as many countries. It's being the most recent thing my agent sold both books to the Chinese. It's going to be published in Chinese. Now, I've thought about how the Chinese are going to translate chicken fried steak, but having been in China and seen what the Chinese eat, they're not going to have any problem with that at all. Oh, we know, we eat stuff like that. But, you know, as we sit here and talk, your, uh, the, the kindergarten book is still on the bestseller list in the Washington Post. And You're going to have two hardcovers on the same bestseller list. Oh, I'm carrying with me in my uh, valise here this Sunday's New York Times where the books are one-two, something oh, that's never happened before. And the following Sunday, we know as of today, they're tied. Oh. Uh, for me, that's amazing. For the people in the book world in New York at Random House, it's like having a Kentucky Derby winner and they got your other horse coming in second. They are just so excited they can't handle it. You must be a very hot property up there right now. 
Well, they seem to think so. Uh, I'm just glad that it turns out there are a lot more people like me in the world than I ever thought. That's the best part of it all. I get lots of cookies in the mail. (laughs) (laughs) Robert Fulgham will be 85 in June, and he lives in Utah and on the Greek island of Crete. And you can find easy Amazon links to Robert Fulgham's books at our website, heardeverything.com. And while you're there, be sure and listen to my interview with a son who picked up where his father's famous work left off, the son of Candid Camera founder Alan Funt, my 2013 interview with Peter Funt. People think about Candid Camera, and what first comes to mind is a form of practical joke. But my dad's real passion was observing human nature. And don't miss my 1993 interview with another author whose books have inspired millions, Maya Angelou. I have never been able to say exactly what I mean. It's like trying to describe green to a person who is colorblind or a melody to a person who has difficulty hearing. And of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find Now I've Heard Everything on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything. In 1979, she became the first woman to be elected mayor of any major U.S. city. My 1992 interview with former Chicago mayor, Jane Byrne. Wherever I would go, they'd say, go get him, or the cars would honk. And finally, the only thing that was there for me to go for was the office of mayor. And I did. And I won. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thompson.